Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1950 film Gun Crazy. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Morning, Sam. I'm great. Uh, Barrett, um, let's just start off. This is a movie that I think, you know, I definitely had heard of, but but had not seen. What is your history with this film? Yeah, it's part of, um, I guess, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, I just got noir crazy. Um, and I just started watching all the noir I could get a hold of. And so I have a five DVD set of, uh, of classic noir and Gun Crazy is in there. And so that was my first encounter with it, just watching it on, uh, watching it on DVD. I don't think I've ever seen it in a, in a theater. So is, the, is this regarded among, like, I guess it must be if it's by some, at least in that collection as sort of a, a class. I mean, it definitely is, is very noir, but does this, is this the kind of movie that comes to mind when people think of film noir? Yeah, it usually, uh, it usually gets in a lot. It's in most top 10 lists. Uh, okay. And uh, it's kind of a late entry. It was sort of forgotten until the early seventies. And I think Paul Schrader was one of the people responsible for kind of bringing it back to people's attention. But yeah, it's certainly, it doesn't get mentioned right away. You know, you hear a double indemnity out of the past, uh, but, but it's, it's always there in that top 10. And it definitely ticks so many of the boxes you would want to put in a, you know, if you were talking, <clears throat> you were talking about film noir, it's maybe one of the better femme fatales uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the, uh, in terms of the Laurie character and just how um, in the, in the best possible way, heavy handed with that idea. <laughs> um, she's, she's pretty great with that. Um I only knew of this movie, uh, and the reason that I know that I knew of this movie is I remember reading in uh, Mark Harris's book that when um, when Benton and Newman were shopping around the idea of of Bonnie and Clyde and writing it, that one of the people that they went to was Francois Truffaut, and he flirted with the idea of making that movie for a while. But one of the things that he did was point them to this movie to say, this is what you really need to go back and look at. So um, uh, some of the DNA of, of Bonnie and Clyde is in this movie. Yeah. That's one of the kind of interesting stories about, you know, in a sense, film noir was sort of uh, discovered and promoted by the French. And we talked earlier, uh, those of those who may have listened a while ago when we watched our Godard's breathless, we talked about breathless being influenced by gun crazy. So ironically, when, yeah, when they were shopping around the script for Bonnie and Clyde, it was Godard that showed them Gun Crazy, which they actually were not aware of. And so there's an interesting kind of transatlantic uh, uh, translation going on there where the French are reminding the Americans of their own roots in, uh, in the films like Gun Crazy. Uh, one of the things that I, I found so interesting about this movie, not knowing anything about it, the way it started, I had one of those moments where I thought, did I start watching the wrong movie? Because it starts off feeling I, I uh, number of years ago, I watched a lot of educational films from the fifties and it's, it starts off feeling like this is going to be an educational film about gun safety or like the dangers of guns or something. Cause it, I mean, it starts with this, this great opening scene uh, with a, with a young uh, Russ Tamblin um, stealing this gun. And then we have this court scene and the, uh, the flashbacks to different parts of his life, and it, it also it felt like like is this like a like reefer madness, but for guns? Like I was trying to figure out where this was headed, and then eventually the movie takes uh, takes a turn and becomes what the movie's going to become. But um, there's a lot going on in that in that opening before we get to 
before we get to the carnival, I would say there's a whole bunch of interesting things that are getting laid out and set up. Although the, when I first watched it, I didn't realize exactly what was going on. Well, yeah, just, just first of all, I, I want to draw attention from the beginning to what I think. And I, this surprised me a little because I had forgotten this about the film. The cinematography is really quite fantastic in this film. It's quite inventive. It's quite, uh, it's, it's very stylized. And it's interesting because it's, it's a film which has, as you've been indicating when you talk about films like Reefer Madness, there's both a kind of documented realism about the film, but then there's a kind of stylization about the film. And that, that starts from the very beginning. So you have a very noirish lighting. You've got the rain because noir loves dark streets at night and, and the rain. You've got the appearance of the sheriff, which is a very kind of German expressionistic shot. It's a, almost, almost an Orson Welles, a low angle shot. Um, you've got Russ Tan- you've got Russ Tanley, as you mentioned, those who don't know Russ Tanlin, uh, he was in uh, West Side Story. Uh, he, of course, was the psychiatrist in uh, Twin Peaks, uh, known for his physical ability. So you've got him doing this, doing this tumble into the water. It's kind of this classic, you know, down and out criminal stance that he stri- takes strikes from the beginning. And But the other thing you have going on, which is really important for the film, is in these opening scenes, when you get the courtroom scene and you get, you know... This is, this is a film that had to push hard up against the, the, the code. Uh, and it's a film that's really dealing with a very uh, kind of subversive topic, you know, the, the link between sex and violence. And so in the courtroom scene, you've got the, you, you, you have to have a commentary on the kid, but at the same time, you can't take away what's going to be the driving force of the film, which is this kind of love for this obsession with guns. So it's interesting to me that from the beginning, the film kind of announces its, uh, its, its, its dangerous plot in a sense, and it has to have a certain amount of censor, but at the same time, it has to have a certain amount of permission for that to kind of go, go forward. And of course, you get this whole notion of what's the origin story? Why is this kid so obsessed with guns? Well, we don't, we don't really know. And fortunately, there's no pseudo-Freudian explanation. Uh, it, it's just left to the audience to kind of infer. I'm glad you mentioned the uh, the first appearance of the police officer in you know at night, and it is this, like you said, very noir German expressionist low angle shot of him looking up, and looks very uh, uh, menacing. And then you see him in the courtroom, and he seems like a very nice guy. <laughs> like like it's like, I mean so so even that is like like he is he at in that first moment you see him and and he seems like this, like this figure of danger. And then you see him later and he's like, Oh yeah, I've known him my whole life. And it, you know, and it's, so I, I found that, that very interesting. I also, um, even the, the kind of blocking of that, um, the, the courtroom scene where he's sitting off in this, like, it's not like he's on the, in, in where you would normally put the defendant in a trial. It's like, they literally put him in the corner and everybody's talking about him and he's uh the way he's posed is very inward it's like you know for for a long time he's it's like he's not even there um as they're having this i also um love how it like you said it introduces his obsession with guns but also his aversion to violence which are going to be two two big ideas so we we do get we do get that origin story um but but it also i i like that the sister is so um is so like so much defending him in terms of like this is 
you know, I just figured he wanted to be good at something and he wanted to, you know, he, that this is something he was good at. So I wanted to be supportive of this thing that he was good. At. I like that. They don't under they don't explain what happened to their parents, mm-hmm. um, but it's very clear this there's gotta be, there's gotta be something in his, in his life that leads to him living with his sister. Um, I even, even like when the, the teacher, um, you know, says, <laughs> you know, I, I thought it's, you know, he has this, th- this attraction to this. It's just like how other kids have that with a harmonica or a baseball bat, you know, that um, this movie's relationship to guns and maybe the 1950 relationship to guns is so, uh, is so interesting. Um, I also, I also love the, introduction of the young versions of characters that we're going to see grown up later on so ruby's the same actress but she did do a good job of making her appear different um as she's older but i love um both clyde and dave that's a really it was just a really great piece of casting because you instantly knew who they were especially um uh especially dave he's the he's the uh, newspaper man yeah, like yeah. it just looks like they found that that person as a child yeah, in some in some ways, it's John Dahl as as uh, as, as an adult who looks least like Russ Tamlin as he was as a teenager. A couple things about that courtroom scene. I want to go back to what you were saying about where he's placed in the frame, because uh, you're right. Not only is he is he off in the background, as though you know he's not even part of this, but the composition is slightly off kilter, which is which is it's kind of a it's kind of a visual representation of the fact that there's something a little off kilter about him because he's not centered in the frame. So it's a very subtle, but I think it's a very deliberate uh, technique. Um, the other thing I would say about that courtroom scene is it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a uh, of a recognition of a common noir trope, which is the flashback. Uh, and even though once that courtroom scene is over, the, the film then pretty much proceeds chronologically. It's a, it's almost as though Lewis is saying, "Yeah, you you expect this with noirs. Uh, you know, you're you're going to want to get some background, and we're we're not quite sure how long it's going to go on. But to me, it's one of those kind of common narrative devices with noir that kind of helps you orient to, um, you know, here's but it's it's also it's, here's the background story, and it's very economically done." Right, it's maybe maybe ten minutes or something like that, and so much is established in those ten minutes. As you said, you know, it's this obsession with gone. He's a basically good kid. He wouldn't kill anything. So every and his relationship to his sister. So and his relationship to his two best friends. I mean, everything that's going to be kind of unpacked in the rest of the film, except of course for for Annie. Uh, everything is kind of there in those first ten minutes. It's really it's really startling. I got to say, as a as a twenty twenty two moment. Um, how disturbing was it to watch to watch the teacher when she's telling her story and and we get her flashback of her walking down the hall walking into class seeing a student with I mean see a student with a gun and and it's and I mean she obviously reacts to it but not in the way like I mean this is 49 years before Columbine it just like I I, I like jumped out of my chair when I saw that and thought wow that's such a strange image I it was it was really interesting you know to, yeah. to see that yeah, it's one of the ways in which the film certainly plays so much differently today and, and certainly uh, disturbing, uh, much more distur- disturbing for us than it would have been for that audience. Yeah, um, I also found it, uh, another important piece that's laid out there, because in some ways, in some ways, this movie, the obsession with guns is almost a misdirect. Um, mm. uh, uh that if you listen to what the judge says, I mean, he says, basically, you're not on trial because you love guns. You're on trial because there's things that you want 
and you can't just take them or it's just something like that. And it's like, Oh, that's actually another, that's like a core piece to this movie because I mean, he's saying this to young Bart, but like, this is also what, uh, definitely young Lori needs to hear you know and 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 we don't what, what's great is we don't get much of a backstory from her um but you wonder about you're gonna wonder about her upbringing and and her trauma um because the thing that i find really interesting is so coming out of this right he gets sent to reform school and then we get this the the fast forward to the present day and we see bart's return from reform school and i I gotta say the the scene where he is uh, sitting with with Clyde and Dave, and they're out in the woods, and he's shooting the bottles, and they're talking. It kind of feels like the system works a little bit. Like he see, actually seems surprisingly well adjusted, and like he's you know he's been through reform school, he's been through the army, he kind of has a plan for his life. Um, he so- hasn't he hasn't lost his obsession with guns, but he's like, yeah, I'll probably go work for Remington and do demonstrations. And um, and uh, I find that a really interesting starting place because you would think and maybe this is just through my eyes of like, I would think like, well, wow, reform school was probably really tough and he's going to come back hardened by that in a kind of way. And in fact, he comes back and seems really well adjusted. Well, that's uh, yeah. That's a really good point, Sam. So that's why th- th- there's three scenes in the film that kind of I think, as I said earlier, are in a sense um, concessions to the to the code. And so I, I love the judge's line to him, the one you alluded to. The judge says, "We all want things, but our possession of them has to be regulated by law." And and you're right. So it looks like law has worked. So the real, the real problem in this film, if I can put it that way, or the, or the real issue in this film is it's not the gun craziness in itself, right? Because he's, he's able to regulate that. And he's established that when he was in the army, he was not in a combat position. So he does not link guns to killing. The real problem is the, is the linking of gun to sex mm-hmm. um, and, and, and sex to a certain kind of craziness and obsession. I mean, the film really should be titled Sex Crazy. Yes, um, but it's really so. As you said, in a sense, guns are are a diversion in in, in 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 the film. So the real turning point of the film is uh, is Andy Laurie Starr's entrance, which mm-hmm. is another low angle shot, and she comes out with those six shooters, and you see his face, and it's like something has clicked that is connected with the gun. So the two things. This is why for me, this is a film that I think a lot about. Uh, in connection with uh, Kubrick's uh, Dr. Strangelove, because Kubrick is one of those directors who's consistently linking a kind of uh, sexuality with violence. Uh, and that, that, and it's writ large in, in Strangelove because that leads to you know, nuclear war. Here it's low, it, it, it's writ small, and it's linked more to a life, of, a life of crime, but also a life of essential lawlessness. So it's, whether it's with guns or whether it's with sexuality, this is really about breaking barriers because you've just, in some sense, kind of lost control of yourself. Yeah, the, the, that, that carnival scene is... Uh, it's insane to watch. Um, I don't know what carnivals were like in 1950, but um, but just the the constant heightening of the danger and the how exciting it it is. And and I have to say, I love. I think these the the two principal actors in this movie are so well cast. Mm-hmm. I think John Dahl is great in this movie. Mm-hmm. 
um, because what he's great. And it's, it's a moment you pointed out. It's we see Lori from, you know, from his point of view. So it's low angle looking up at her. Right. But we also see him from her point of view, looking down on him and you see his face and it is like he has never seen a woman before. And it's the and it's a woman and a gun. And it's the most exciting thing he could imagine, you know, like um, and there's this this great moment. And again, this is an insane moment. If you think about this in reality, where she's she walks out and she's shooting guns sort of, you know, yes. and then she points at him yeah. as if she is like, you are now in my sights. And that is um and I mean, they've never met before, but she can read something about him and something about his draw to her. And then so she points the gun at him and then she pulls the trigger yes. and if you realize it's a blank, but it's like, that's it. That's an insane moment. But it sets up this. Uh, it sets us up. And then we get the uh, uh, well, we get her sort of displaying her talents and then we get the challenge um, where 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 he comes up. And I also love. Bart's like ease and cockiness at that moment, because like that's we've seen him be adept at shooting. Um, and he seems sort of again, this is part of the like it's like a, a shift in what I was saying before about how well adjusted he seemed, like that the system worked. And then you see here, and it's like, I think you're a little too comfortable in this moment, too. Like, like it's it's played so well because it is, I mean, it is literally they're flirting with with guns and they're pushing each other to. I mean, they're they're shooting guns at each other in this scene, you know, when they have the crown on um, and there are just as there's and there's just this great sense where before he shoots the last uh, the last match, he looks back at his friends and then it's just that's such a great scene to establish. It's OK. We've talked on this podcast before about how sometimes a movie tells me people are attracted to each other or people who people are in love and I don't always buy it. This I buy. This is like this is undeniable because of that scene. That was actually Sam. That was exactly the connection I was going to make. That we have that conversation frequently with film with films, and you're right. And I I I do love the moment when he looks back at the friends because you think to yourself, well, is he kind of going to do like the chivalrous thing? Is he going to deliberately miss so she doesn't lose? And I'm like, no, because he knows that. He, he knows that she ha- he knows he has to do this because he has to show his expertise, but he also knows that's going to be really exciting to her. And I also want to pick up on something you said about the system. Maybe the system doesn't really work because I'm, I'm going to make a connection. This is maybe an odd one. I'm going to make a connection to another Kubrick film, which is Clockwork Orange, where at the end of Clockwork Orange, where you think Malcolm McDowell has been tamed, right, by, by this therapy that he's going, this, this therapy he's going through. And it turns out he's still living the exact same violent fantasies in his head that he has all along. And so it's a little bit different with going crazy because, because you know, I, I think that he wants to keep his use of guns within some kind of um, uh, reasonable limit, right? He still doesn't want to use his guns to kill people. Um, that's very clear. And there's several moments in the film when he has to make the decision not to shoot to kill and tries to keep her from shooting to kill. But it also unleashes, um, it unleashes the gun in the service of another impulse, another force that he is uh, really unable to control. So famously, Joseph Lewis, when he was directing the film, at the beginning, he, he gave uh, John Doe and Peggy Cummins uh, the, these directions. 
he told John Dahl, and I'm going to have to uh, modify his language for, uh, for a general audience. He told, told John Dahl, you've never been so excited in your life. And he told Peggy Cummins, uh, you're a dog in heat. And uh, he said, that's, that's all the direction either, either actor needed to explain the relationship. Um, yeah, I, again, I, I, this, this worked for me so well, and this is where the movie really launches, you know, up until this point, I'm not sure what I'm watching. And then I realized, okay, this is, this is what this movie is going to be. So then we, we get kind of a fast forward from here, uh, where, cause we get to, we get to Bart now working for the carnival. Um, we get a little indication of the tension that, um, that packet doesn't love this, but he also hires him because he knows talent when he sees it. Um, and we get to one of my favorite weird scenes in this movie, which is, uh, when, it's clearly after some night of performance and he goes into uh, to to the clowns um, trailer to Bluey Bluey's trailer. And, uh, you know, Bluey talks about, you know, how how they have. Uh, what is he more ways to uh, to to more ways to take suckers money than we have suckers or something like that. Um <laughs> And then Bluey's the one who's giving him this advice about like, you're really dumb. Uh, she ain't the type that makes a happy home. He's like giving him all these warnings about her. And I have to, just cause I want to try to beat you to this, to this reference. Like I thought instantly of King Lear. It's like, we have the clown, the fool who's laying out the best piece of advice. And of course he's not going to listen to him, but he's literally wearing clown makeup, giving, giving this guy life advice. And I thought that is, that is a Shakespearean moment right there. Am well, I right? I'll, I'll, I'll make, I'll make a more modest connection to another, to one of the classic films noir, which is double indemnity, right? Where, um, Walter Neff thinks that uh, that he's running the con, and he really doesn't understand what Barbara Stanwyck is about. Um, the other, but but here's to me. So it's a classic film noir line, like, and it's something that your audience is supposed to often infer, but here it's kind of laid out for you. But I think there's a key difference here. Um, I actually believe, and this was not something I remembered as well about the film. But I think unlike many of the other noir couples who completely come apart when the plans go bad, I think they actually really care for each other. Um, she is a femme fatale. And there is that moment, of course, when she threatens to leave him if he's going to stop robbing banks with her. And so it's clear that she has the power over him because of the combination of sex and guns. But at the same time, I actually believe her when she says that she loves him. And I think he really loves her. And to me, that's one of the interesting twists that this film makes on the classic noir relationship and the classic femme, femme fatale. Um, so that, that to me is why Bluey's advice is both right, she's never gonna settle down. The idea they're gonna go to Mexico and have a ranch, that's ridiculous. Um, and it's a fantasy they both kind of wanna believe in. But at the same time, you know, this is a film in which you get two honeymoon scenes. And I can't think of any other film noir that does that. In fact, you don't get many honeymoon scenes at all. So you have a, a real honeymoon scene after they uh, go to the Justice of the Peace. And then about uh, towards the end of the film, when they're about to leave for Mexico, you get kind of another sort of honeymoon scene that also involves a carnival. Uh, and those are, those are images that you don't see in a typical noir femme fatale relationship because usually by that top point in the film they're secretly trying to kill each other or they're they really have kind of fallen out of love and that really doesn't happen in, in this film 
Well, yeah, I mean, we get this the, the, this great moment um, much later in the movie when uh, the plan is to split up mm-hmm. and oh. they both start to drive away. And they the fact that they both turn around and are like, it, it's it's in part love and it's it's I think in part uh, what I think is another the- theme of this film, which is a very fits in with noir, which is like at a certain point we have crossed the Rubicon mm. and there's no going back and we are our fates are linked together. So even if we try to separate, we know this story leads to us together even if we know that this story leads to us to our destruction that our destruction is tied to each other there is but it's it's as if like the storytelling gods are keeping the cars magnetically from actually leaving each other and saying no no no, you you don't get to do that this is the way the story goes um i, I really like that that moment and then oh, and i'm glad you brought up that moment sam i do too and it's also another um to draw attention again to cinematography uh, it's another beautiful moment where something happens without a cut and you don't really realize it until you re- re- look at it again. And that is when he gets out of his car and into her car. And of course, typically this is 1950. He takes the steering wheel. Um, he gets in the car and, and it's being shot from the from the hood right through the windshield. He gets in the car. There's not no, sorry. He gets in the car. He gives her a kiss. And then uninterruptedly, there's no cut. The car just starts driving. And you realize that they must have either had a camera mounted on the hood or a crane. And it's, 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 it's seamless. And it's so, um, it's so beautifully done that you don't even notice that it's done. But it's another one of those moments where um, Lewis has so many uninterrupted cuts and under, 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 uninterrupted shots in this film. And that's just another one of them. And it really, it really helps that scene come to a, a really great conclusion yeah and and what's what i love about them is they're not showy i mean there there's one big showy one but they're not always showy like i didn't notice i know the scene you're talking about i didn't notice that as a one as a as a no-cut scene um so uh i want to go back though so after the conversation with bluey bluey then we get the the confrontation with with um packet and then he um, packet goes, and this is where we get we start to get a little bit of Lori backstory, and then and then it gets pieced out a little bit more. Um, but it's clear that 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 packet has control over her um, because he knows about this person that she killed in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Um, that he has this desire for her, um, and we learn later that that person she killed was when they were doing a robbery. So like, this is, so what I love and that, that information comes out much later, but I love the idea that, that um, Bart is not her first person that she's gone down this path with, that this is this, this is her life keeps leading her that way. Um, but what, what I, the thing I wanted to talk about is, so when Bart comes in to that room and he shoots a packet, and now we know that Bart's a great shot. So we know if he wanted to kill him, he could. Mm-hmm. And he just shoots at the mirror instead. But it is the most violent thing mm-hmm. or among the most violent things that he does where he's actually is using the gun to to threaten. And and the, the implication is take another step. And this one is in the back of your head, mm-hmm. um, which I found really interesting because Bart has this doesn't have this connection between the gun and violence, but he knows it's there. <laughs> You know, and, and so I, so I think that because, because I was thinking about, you know, what is the, what is the moment when he, 
he and they like really crossed this line to a point where it would be hard to come back from. And like, I don't think this is that moment, but it's the beginning of sort of saying like, okay, he has, he has more in him than he even wants to admit. I think in terms of how he could make use of this uh, talent of his. Well, and it become it becomes a real tension between the two of them because his impulse is as much as possible not to kill, not to be violent. In fact, in fact, one commentator suggested that maybe his mental illness is that he can't kill. Um, uh, and Annie's uh, impulse is, is, you know, when, when push comes to shove, she will kill. And, and she will kill even if she doesn't necessarily have to kill. So the first time we see her kill somebody in the, ar- in the armor robbery when she shoots her, her, her former, her boss, um, it really wasn't necessary to do that. And she tries to tell... Uh, Bart, that she hasn't done that. But um, it's just, it seems like there's something about, and we don't know her backstory, right? We don't know why she's that way, really. Uh, but it's equally as inexplicable as Bart. So you have these two that are, they're linked by both sex and violence, but for, from different, from different angles, in a sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, she, she, she says that she does it when she gets scared. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the only other piece of backstory that we get of her is she's, she mentions at some point, and this is so general, but it's not hard to piece together what this could mean that she's been kicked around in life, yeah, yeah. you know, and that there is this sense of like, I, I mean, maybe her love uh, differently than Bart's, maybe her love of guns is a way to say like a way to grab power back in life, you know, because um, it, it is, it both creates multiple ways of life for her or means of, 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 of making a living, but it's also, maybe her way to say, I am, this is, this is how I'm never going to be kicked around again. Um, and, you know, basically she shoots that person because she pulled the alarm and because she, she kicked her around, you know, cause we see her, that's the same woman who earlier is reprimanding her for wearing pants at work. So there is this sense of like, I am, I am not going to take things from people anymore. Well- no, I mean, you, you, you could make an argument, I suppose this could be true of a lot of the femme fatales of films noir, you could make an argument that she is in that respect a kind of a proto-feminist. Uh, and the idea that I'm not going to be kicked around anymore, I mean, it makes me wonder uh, whether, uh, whether Ridley Scott um, had this film in mind when he made Thelma and Louise, because mm. there's a sense in which that's, that's the model of Thelma and Louise, right? We've taken as much as we can anymore, we're just going gonna to fight back. Um, so then when they run off and they, and the, the first stop that they make is, uh, is to get married, which is clearly Bart's idea. Um, and, and, uh, she seems, her face is interesting to read in that moment because he's, he, she asks her, is that what you want? And he says, yes, but there is this sense that I think that's not necessarily, important to her but she's like well if that's what you want i guess i could this is where we get that great line outside of the the chapel where where she's like like i'm bad but i want to be good or i think i want to be good or i think i could be i forget i mean she says in iterations of these things where you know it makes me realize like like this is bart has these sort of particular ideas about what life and love and sex and relationships are supposed to be and he's trying to conform to that a little so it's like well marriage would be the thing we do and for her i it's she has a she has different views about what she necessarily wants or needs in life 
Yeah, and, and later on, you know, when when she decides they need to to launch uh, into bank robbing, robbing, she says, "So I've changed my mind. I told you, I told you, I was no good." Yeah, um, and it said, "Yeah," and so it's like, it, uh, "I tried, but uh, this is a film noir, so that's just not not going to work." But it is interesting, as you as you said, that Bart that Bart maintains this kind of domestic ideal, uh, and of course, it's it's important that the film. Uh, I, I love the structure of the film, right? It's important that the film brings him back to his hometown at the end. Uh, and, 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 but now he's a disruptive force in this domesticity that he thought that he wanted for himself and Annie. Um, so then from here, we get to, we get the, um, the sort of the honeymoon montage that you were talking about and the spending montage you were, um, uh, and, and, you know, it, it, it culminates with, <laughs> Her, her saying like, I'm sorry, I thought we could beat Vegas. Um, and there, so there is this sense of like, that's her idea of an honest living is like, yeah, well, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll go, we'll make our money that way because I mean, and this goes back to that, that sort of domestic view of, of Bart's. I think that um, I don't think she, she has a vision of life that isn't that, that, that doesn't end up in robbing stores and banks. Mm. You know, I don't know that, that, and maybe that's part of her brokenness that she's incapable of she's incapable of understanding a way of life that isn't that because when he brings up the idea of like you know I could I could uh get a job making $40 a week at Remington I could still do that the um we could sell the dueling pistols and that that's enough to get us a start and she's like that's not the kind of start that I want you know that that she's she wants to do some living she wants to there's things she wants in life and she wants big things in life um and and that's also i mean that's that's again thinking about where that sort of crossing the rubicon moment is it's like we're right on the verge of that where um because this is one of the moments when bart is uh he's not threatening to leave but she sort of is she's like well you can either you could either well, you could either join me in this life of crime or i'm going because i know that that's where this story leads for me yeah, she, she reminds me a little little bit as well of the, um, the Virginia Mayo character in uh, the Best Years of Our Lives. Mm. You know, she's the one. Oh that, yeah, yeah. You know, she's the one that tells Dana Andrews. You know, she's uh, upset with Dana Andrews because he can't provide the things that she wants to. So again, it's it's a way as though it's it's another way in which the film is a little bit subversive because it's taking that that notion of ambition and the American dream and turning it into a form of of sexual blackmail. Um, and what's really interesting about that scene where she basically blackmails him, of course, she's on the bed putting on the stockings uh, and they're really, really pushing the code at that point, because the code says if two people are in a room with a bed, with a bed you have to you have to show them with, with at least one foot on the floor or something like that. Hmm. And of course, you know, the camera moves in to show them embrace, you know, about to embrace or they kiss. I can't remember which. And there's no. There's no evidence that he's still on the floor. So, um, so he, uh, Lewis just keeps kind of pushing the code a little, a little bit on that. So I think we know exactly what's going on, but it's, 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 it's significant, of course, that it's a bedroom scene. Absolutely. So then they, they, they embark on this, uh, their, their life of, of doing these robberies. And I, I love the, <laughs> the sort of different costumes they wear, the different, uh, you know, uh, we don't really get to see them employ a lot of that. We see a couple robberies where 
sort of the characters that they're playing make sense. But I, I love that we get this little, we, we get these sort of different views of what they, what they look like. Now it's interesting is we don't get to see the fruits of any of this. I mean, it's not like there, it's not like any of these are a big score. It's just sort of like, this is, this is the way we earn our daily bread sort of feeling to it. It's not like they don't seem to be living high off of this yeah so i, th- I think you infer yeah either it's, it's a combination yeah I, I think first of all yeah there's the implication that these are pretty pretty small jobs right which is why the armor robbery is going to be the one that's going to set them up you also get the implication that they aren't particularly disciplined that mm-hmm. the, the reason they lost all their money to begin with um that <laughs> they haven't learned how to budget uh and, and that's already set up with her right she wants to live the high life so i think the implication is Whatever they make, they spend, mm-hmm. and so it's a constant. It's a constant uh, machine that has to be fed if, if they're going to keep going. Well, and that leads to there that that connects to sort of the fatalism that that sort of runs runs in the movie at this point, which is like, why would you think about the future if this is how your life is going to be? You know that that in, inherent in all of this is the risk and the violence. So you shouldn't be thinking probably too long term. Um, right. You know that 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 that's probably not the way to live this. So we get the scene where, um, and I, I'm the chronology uh, mixes up a little bit with me here, but where they're being chased by the police and, um, and Lori's driving and Bart and she's, she keeps telling Bart to shoot at them. And it's like, we get a replaying of the scene with the mountain lion where he's mm-hmm. got it all lined up and he can't do it and he can't do it. Um, and then he eventually shoots out the tire Mm-hmm. instead um which is i think the only moment in this movie where them being like crack shots matter it's yeah. funny like we get this whole setup about how great they are and how accurate they are and sharpshooters but it it's mostly just that they have guns and are comfortable holding them like there isn't uh this is the only moment where his ability to be the best shot matters um but it sort of it sort of allows him to find a middle ground to both please her and not have to not have to kill I have to say one more thing about, you know, you mentioned their uniforms um, or their, their costume changes. Uh, another moment where um, I think that the 1950 audience would have been pretty uncomfortable and Bart himself is uncomfortable is when they've, uh, he's stolen the clothing of the, uh, of the army or the military. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, that would have been a, that, that would have been a scene that would have been really, um, uh, challenging for an audience. So it's only five years after after World War II, and here he, and, and he talks about how he feels uncomfortable in that in that uniform. So again, it's another way of sneaking in a concession to the code while still doing something subversive, but at the same time saying I feel really bad being this, this subversive. But it's also the scene where he gets this really interesting kind of existential monologue about. I don't really understand what I'm doing. It's like I've fallen into a nightmare and, and nothing is real anymore. And, but you're the only thing that's real to me. So it's, it's one of the starkest. And yet I think it works really well uh, explorations of the film's basic theme where he actually has a moment of introspection. And he tells us that he knows that he's caught up in something crazy but he can't help what he's, what he's doing. So it's, all, it's as though when he was younger, the only thing that was, that was real was the gun. But now the only thing that's real is is Annie, and either way, he's just driven by these impulses. Yeah, and and that's and that's this. I, that was a, a scene that I loved because that is when he's sort of realizing, like, 
there's there isn't a way out of this there isn't a you know and he's gonna make some attempts at it but we know after i mean we know in lots of ways but we know especially at that point that it's like this is all heading to a to to a conclusion um and it's what it's what makes that scene when they um split up and immediately you know turn around and connect with each other that it's like this is a they are on a bullet train heading in one direction um so we just need to we just need to mention the uh the bank robbery one shot scene which is uh stunning because one of the things that i noticed is uh very often in movies at this time when you see cars and people driving in cars it's a rear projection you know and they're sitting in a in a even in even in very high quality movies of this time you'll see people in cars and, and i'll you'd be like well that's not real they're not really driving a car but that they have to be because they are driving up to and he's giving directions and they're driving up to the to the bank and then we see that whole we don't see the bank robbery but we get the tension of almost like the ticking clock and then we see uh we see Lori come out and talk with the cop and this is when they're dressed in their um carnival clothes mm-hmm. um and she's you know making up this backstory and kind of flirting with the cop as he as in the background we're we're seeing people come out of the bank and then we eventually see him come out of the bank and then we get them back in the car and go and that's just a really amazing piece of filmmaking i think for a modern audience um used to a lot of mobile camera work and used to a lot of handheld camera work i think uh it it may be hard to appreciate the technical challenge that lewis faced and overcame so first of all as as you may infer the dialogue is all improvised uh as they come into town as they pull off the robbery and that was lewis's intention but in order to uh, to mount the camera in the car, it's actually a stretch limo. Um, and what they did was they took all the seats out except the front seats, so they could fit you know this pretty large camera in the back mm-hmm. in the back of the car. And then uh, they had a, a cameraman on the roof of the car with a boom mic, so they could uh, get the dialogue between Annie and the policeman on the on the sidewalk. Um, so there's a lot of really cool stuff going on that was pretty challenging to do. Uh, in, in, in 1950. And of course, that point of view shot, that was the thing that Godard borrowed uh, later on for, for Breathless with the camera in, in, in the back seat. And then you're right, then you get a chase scene where um, you know, there's no rear projection. This is really them roaring down, roaring down those streets. And it would, that was so exciting to, to watch and to realize that this has to be them actually driving. I didn't realize the boom mic part. That's the part I was trying to figure out is how do they, how are they doing the audio for this? Um, That's really, that's really interesting. Okay. So then we get to the payroll robbery. um, And uh, this is interesting because as you said, they're kind of um, maybe not the most organized, the most disciplined robbers, but this is the, this is the one that has like elements of a heist to it because, you know, we see them getting out the map of the factory and pointing out they both had to get jobs at this factory in order to pull this off. So, so I, I actually, this was, this was kind of exciting because this is also the, you know, preceding this is the, the scene where, um, where Bart is kind of saying like, I, I think I want to be done with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get the Lori once again, seducing him back to one last job, one last big job, and then we can be done. And you know that this is not one last job. Um, but, uh, but they're like, again, I, she's just irresistible to him um, and to the viewer for that matter. It's just like, it's like you just get pulled back into this. Um, but I thought, I thought that's, that's such an exciting scene because we see them plan it. 
where the others are sort of like smash and grab robberies, you know, more uh, robberies of opportunity rather than, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. And then to watch it fall apart is, is exciting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Despite the planning, yeah, they, they run the wrong way. They drop the, they drop the briefcases a couple of times. And, and, and then, and then the other, and of course she shoots two people dead. But the other thing that this points out about them is they're, they're not very good bank robbers because they have no idea about the serial numbers that can be used to, to trace them. And uh, one, of the, one of the things I find interesting is just as uh, in white heat, you get elements of this more sophisticated um, crime fighting uh, apparatus. In the case of white heat, you have, you know, the ability to track the cars with the radio. And here you've got, you know, the, I don't know when the, Treasury started doing this, or the FBI started doing this, but now you've got the serial numbers of the uh, of the the money that can be traced. And they maybe, in fairness to them, this is a fairly new crime fighting technique. I don't know, but they don't seem to have any recognition that it's, this money has to be laundered or in some other way. They can't just go spread, spreading this money around because it's going to get them caught. And they seem to have no awareness of that. So from from here we get then the I mean the fact that they get out of this is amazing because uh, this feels like it feels like this is where they're going to get um, captured and gunned down. I kept waiting for that moment, but that the, they get out and they get to California, um, and there's the great scene when they're crossing over the border, um, and and she's freaking out about it, and he's super cool about like this is they do this all the time. They um, so that that's great, and then we get the the dance hall scene um, where they realize that they're being followed. And this is where they have to kind of leave the money behind um, and run. Um, but the dancing, the dance hall scene is also the, the, you know, kind of the one moment where it feels like they're getting to just for a moment, enjoy the, uh, the fruits of their labor, if you will, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so then they hop, they, they hop a freight train and they go back. So this is where we get the full circle back to home they go to Ruby's house and it's interesting how different she is now towards him. She's so excited when he's coming back from reform school in the army. She's so excited to tell her kids about their uncle Bart. And now it's, she's so different. And this is kind of the domestic life that they, that they've rejected. They're now intruding on. And there's the great moment when, when Ruby walks into the kitchen and you just see Lori standing there, staring at the phone, basically ready to take out Ruby. If she, if she uh, dares to, to call the police. Yeah. And you, and and it's, it's a scene where in a sense, you kind of get two possible roles for the American woman. You can either be kind of a wholesome drudge like Ruby, or you can be kind of a black widow spider like, like Annie. And those, those are the only choices. And of course, the other thing that the scene reveals is, uh, again, Annie is much more ruthless than Bart. You know, she locks them in the garage and she actually wants to use the child as, uh, as, as, a, as a negotiating bait. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just seems, you know, completely wrong. <laughs> uh, and then all of this propels us to the, to the end of the movie, which when they go up into the mountains, that 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 um, uh, that Bart knows well from childhood, and we get this great image of the fog, and it's literally like the world is closing in on them. The fog is closing; their world has gotten small, and really, all we can see is this small little patch of weeds that they're in, and we can't see the world around us, but we can hear the world coming to them we can hear the uh, the authorities and the dogs coming to them and that's such a great image of being trapped 
Yeah, the the the, 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 the fog the fog cinematography is, is fantastic, and of course, what what I what I love at the end is there's both an affirmation of uh, of their relationship, right? Where um, he says, "I you know I wouldn't wouldn't want it any other way," but Lewis does a very typical noir thing, and that is he gives the he gives the character an opportunity to, in some limited way, redeem himself before he has to pay for his for his uh for his crime so interestingly enough the 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 best thing that bart does at the end is kill annie Mm -hmm. you know and so what he has to do at that point is he has to make a choice and so his killing of her actually becomes more commendable in some ways than his failure to shoot at people at or even a mountain lion at any other time so there's a way in which he gets to reaffirm his connection to his friends, his connection to the person he used to be, but he does that by no longer following his own rule of not of not killing. So it's it's one of those wonderful endings where you know, okay, so he really kind of had a moment of clarity at the end that he that he has to choose his hometown and his friends, not not Annie, but he still has to die because of everything that he's done with her. Um, so it's kind of a perfect noir ending in that. Respect. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought that's that that was brilliant. Kind of this idea that I'm going to I'm going to save my friends, but in doing that, the second they hear the gunshots, too, yeah, like exactly. they they unload, and so there is there is no hope of of being arrested and put on trial or anything. It's like that's that's the moment. But he saves them because we also know if Annie can hear them, Annie can shoot them. Yes, yes, because we've we've seen how how adept uh, she is at that point. And I just love the final crane shot. I just love the way the crane pulls up at the end. It's just mm-hmm. it's, it's great. Um, wow, we've talked a lot in this movie. Are there other things you want to talk about here? Yeah, I just want to kind of tick off a number of things, um, um, uh, Sam. First of all, I just want to say that one more thing about cinematography. One of my favorite shots in the scene in the film is when they're when they're driving out to the their final resting place. You get this another again another one of these low angle shots through the steering wheel, which I just love. And there's a lot of really tight close ups in this film as well. But the shot through the steering wheel, uh, Lewis made a lot of early westerns, and um, he liked to shoot through wagon wheels. So he was actually mm-hmm. called Wagon Wheel Joe. And so I think in a way it's kind of. Russ Harlan, who is a cinematographer, did a lot of uh, work with Howard Hawks. He actually shot Rio Bravo uh, as well as Red River. So I think it's like an, kind of an homage to the early career of Joe, of, of Joe Lewis. Um, and so I also, also wanted to mention a couple of other connections to other films that we've, that we've watched. So um, Nedrick Young, uh, who plays Dave, he was more a writer than an actor. He, wrote the, he won an Academy Award for writing uh, The Defiant Ones. Oh, which you know we watched a while ago, um, and the the actual um, writer for this film was Dalton Trumbo, who was famously blacklisted, you know, because of his involvement with the communists. And so uh, Millard Kaufman was only one of his many pseudonyms that he used. And he wrote this film just three months before he had to go to prison for contempt of Congress. Um, and so, in a way, some of the anger in the film, you might say, is sort of is sort of uh, in 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 there. And the other interesting thing is that um, uh, that Lewis did not know, evidently, until years later, that Dalton Trumbo had had written the film. Oh, really? Uh, that part yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. And then one uh, one 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 other connection, and one other comment. The connection is uh, the music in the, the 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 main song in the film, "Mad About You." Uh, written by Vic Young. Uh, he wrote the music for Shane, 
Mm. Um, and then one of the best descriptions I've, I've heard of, of, of Annie is a cross of Annie Oakley and Lady Macbeth. <laughs> <laughs> I think that kind of that nails it. Well, I have two things. For one thing, if you're listening to this, I realize you're calling her Annie and I'm calling her Lori. That's the same person. Annie <laughs> she's, she's, she's Annie Lori. So, so, so we're both using different names, but we mean the same person. Um, I want to make one historical connection um, very loosely, but this is, this is very near and dear to my heart. We are, uh, we're recording this earlier in the week than we normally do. So we're recording this on um, August 23rd. And this is the 95th anniversary. Today is the 95th anniversary of uh, the end of another story of a famous payroll robbery. So this is the 95th anniversary of the day that Sacco and Vanzetti were executed for a payroll robbery, uh, uh, alleged payroll robbery in Boston at a at a. Uh, a shoe factory. I, I, I did my, my uh, graduate work on Sacco and Vanzetti. So every time August rolls around, I spent a lot of time in the summer of 1927 on this. So um, it just was interesting to watch a payroll robbery and be like, ah, this is, this is, uh, this is an important anniversary uh, in, in, in the history of things like that. Uh, so, Barrett, I, what do you have? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I, I realized there's one more thing I had to say. Um, Cause you didn't ask me how this movie was received contemporaneously. It didn't do well. Um, it opened in uh, January of 1950 and closed very quickly. Um, and it opened under an alternate title. It opened under the title Deadly is the Female. Um, Better and, title in some ways. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 the, I mean, the, the it's yes. Gun Crazy would be too hot. So then they re-released it in August as Gun Crazy. But at this point, the theaters were like, no, you're trying to sell us the same, the same loser two times in a row. And it's interesting because usually I think retitlings go the other way. So Ace in the Hole, right, that gets re-released as, what is it, The Big Carnival, something like that? Yeah, it's a yeah. terrible name. Um, and I think I think Deadly as a Female is an interesting name, but I think Gun Crazy works a lot better. So Yeah, I, and I, I like Gun Crazy better because you, it plays with an idea in this movie. Uh, Deadly as the Female is very on the nose, though. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> yes. Uh, so what do you have for us for next week? I think you've already tipped your hand here. Yeah, I think it's no surprise that we have to go to Bonnie and Clyde from 1967. One of those, one of those films that kind of helped to, uh, to mark the launch of the so-called New Hollywood, uh, which is interesting because um, Gun Crazy is not, is, is, it's a B movie. It was, um, it was actually released under United Artists because the King Brothers picked it up to distribute it. But it basically, Lewis was a, was a B movie guy. Um, but when we go to Bonnie and Clyde, we're going to get a big studio release. So oh, I'm very excited. I've, I've read the Mark Harris book, but I haven't actually seen this movie yet. So um, I, it, I had to fight every inclination I had to not just watch it this week along with this. So I, I held off because I think we're going to be I think we're going to be making a lot of gun crazy connections um, as we talk about Bonnie and Clyde. So I'm, uh, I'm very excited for that, Barrett. Thank you so much for recommending this. This is a movie I probably would have never watched. And I got to say, when I first watched it, I thought, I'm not sure why we're watching this, what we have to say about it. And this was a great conversation. Um, I think this is a movie, the more I think about it, the more interesting it becomes. So thank you for recommending this movie. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Bonnie and Clyde in the video store. Mm-hmm.